We've been in the book of Ephesians, this letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, second week here in the first two verses of chapter five, racing through, <laughs> not. But if you have a Bible or a device, which is interesting, I never used to say that, but if you have a turn in your device, <laughs> you don't even turn, you just push it around. Anyway. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and hold your finger there and go to the Gospel of John according, or the Gospel according to John chapter 15. I want to look at something there as we get rolling this morning. So we'll be in Ephesians 5, look at 1 and 2, but first in John chapter 15, Jesus has just finished the Last Supper with his men. He has, if you look at the last verse in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, come, let us go from here. And if you remember, if you were with us in our study in the Gospel of John, I don't believe that he took off and that he went walking through the town at that moment. I believe he went up on the roof. Uh, Having stood in the upper room in Jerusalem and then gone up on the roof, what was customary in their day was... uh, up on the roof in that culture, that was where the air conditioning was. And it was literal. And it, it, it's a hot area. I grew up in Southern California, and the climate is almost exactly the same. It's very similar. Hot, hot days in the summer. And they would go up. What they would do is they would cover the roof with trellises, and they would grow grapes. There was a dual purpose in that. They used the grapes for their wine. But also, if you know about grapes, they have great big, huge leaves. And they would let these grapes grow. They would prune them and trim them and train them so that they covered the trellis and there was always shade. Didn't matter how hot it was outside, you could go up on the roof and have shade. Now, at that time of year, when Jesus was doing this at Passover, it it was spring. And there would have been, if you know anything about grapes, man, those things, it's like they (laughs) were growing zucchinis at home. (laughs) And my wife, it seems like every day she comes in with an armload. We only have a couple of plants. But I mean, those things grow these great big, huge leaves. And the grapes, they grow big leaves. And and they grow really, really fast. And so setting the scene for this in John chapter 15, I believe that when Jesus left that upper room and he went up on the roof with his guys, full moon, Passover's at the full moon, could have looked right down on the Temple Mount, there on on Mount Zion, beautiful spot. And, and, And that as he's now teaching his men, parting instructions, last minute, things to say, looking around at the ground, probably clippings, because these things grow so fast that they're already, the the vine dresser is already training them, pruning them. Into that scene, this particular uh, passage fits perfectly. And he may have not gone up on the roof, but I, I find it, I'm hard pressed to think that he didn't because of the the living illustration in front of him. I believe he pointed as he taught, which he often did. John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus here is talking about fruit bearing. He's talking about what it is to abide in the vine. He says that, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're the ones where the fruit is by design to grow. And, and that your nourishment flows from me out to you. It doesn't go the other way around. But that he says, I want you to understand there's a principle at work here. As you abide in me, you will have things in your life. He's talking about things that are cut away. That's the pruning. And things that are growing. That's the growth that he wants to see. And the growth is far more effective as the pruning takes place, because then the energy in the plant is devoted to that which remains, and it flourishes. 
He's saying, you're already clean because of what I've spoken to you. I've already spoken to you. So he's talking to his men. He's talking to the guys that would go out and turn the world upside down for Christ. He's talking to guys that by the next day when he was in the tomb, they would be so bewildered and overwhelmed by what had taken place. But they would be thinking. By the Holy Spirit, they would be connecting the dots. They would be connecting the things that he had to say. And here he's saying that if you belong to me, you're going to get pruned. I remember in my Bible college Bible, which is held together by duct tape. It's, it's really cool. Uh, sitting on my shelf in my, in my study. Uh, right at this passage, I wrote the words clip, clip, clip. <laughs> because he does prune us, doesn't he? So as we're talking about this, this fruit bearing, we're talking about the pruning that takes place. We're talking about things that are coming off and things that are, being, that are coming on here. In context, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's saying, put off the old man. Let that be pruned away. And put on the new man, which is increasing in glory, which is increasing, which is growing in Christ. And it's very, very similar to what Jesus says in John 15. What we're looking at here, the same principles apply. There is a cutting away of the old life. And there is a putting on of the new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not something we produce ourselves. You don't see a tree struggle to produce fruit. It doesn't sit there and shake. It's something that happens when the tree is being supported by the the branch, when the leaves are being supported by the branches, which are supported by the trunk. It's a beautiful picture here. So what we're looking at here in Ephesians 5.1, he says, therefore be imitators of God and as dearly beloved children. Beloved is really what that word is. It's, It's a derivative agape. What he's talking about is to imitate God, what it is to imitate God. And remember, folks, we talked about this, even though our lives are lived by the grace of God in voluntary submission to him, this is a command. This is what's known in the original language. It's an imperative. He's saying this is not optional equipment. This is standard equipment. This is something that should be in place in the life of every Christian. Jesus says the same thing there. He says, you know what? If the branch isn't doing anything, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. No, that's not, this is what he's telling them wasn't for people that were unbelieving. What he was telling them is the same thing Paul is saying here. Be imitators as beloved children, as you belong to him. Understand that you are saturated in the love of God. We'll talk about that as we go. And that he gives this command because he wants people to know. He wants God by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul here wants us to know that this is imperative. It's, it's very, very important what our lives look like on this side of the cross. It's not about just going back and living the old life. We've been looking at that here and we'll look at it again next week because he goes into uh, sexual immorality and a, a lot of different issues there that, uh, that are the product of our fallen nature. And it's about being renewed, the new man, the new woman. So as he's talking about that, when he says imitators, we looked last week at the Greek word uh, mimetes, which is where we get the word mime or the word mimic. So understand, when we, he, he's talking about, yeah, he's saying mimic God, but our culture puts a negative connotation on that. Like, you know, if I told my son, hey, take out the trash, and he answers, hey, take out the trash. Now, he's mimicking me. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not a derisive thing. It's not contemptuous. He's not ridiculing. But what he's saying is literally put on Christ. Imitate Christ. And understand that as you do that, it's as a beloved child, like a child does with his father or his mother. Verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What he's talking about here when he says to walk in love, when he exhorts to walk in love, is to walk in agape love, is to walk sacrificially. That's what agape is. We, in our culture, we look at love and, and we assign it to the emotional we assign it to the warm fuzzies. Well, you know, I, I'm in love. And, and that's not a bad thing at all. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. But the love of God is different than that. The love of God is by its very nature sacrificial. 
That's why he uses Jesus' ultimate example here in verse 2 when he talks about how because walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, sacrificed for us. Remember, I mentioned last week, to be imitators of God is a major theme in the New Testament. This is not small stuff. Uh, this is, it's a major thread that runs through the word of God where he, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're told here to be imitators of God. We're told in other places to imitate Jesus, that, that we're being conformed to his image. Romans 8.29 tells us, again, a major theme. As we look at that, the question becomes, well, okay, that's fine, preacher. You tell me I need to imitate God, but how do I do that? I'm not going to stand in front of a mirror and say, okay, no. No, it's not that. What he's saying here is imitate him in the way he is. And that's why we've been looking at the attributes of God. Last week, we looked at the incommunicable attributes. Those are the ones that he does not share with us. Those are the ones that when Adam and Eve fell, when the serpent came and said, you can be as God. And they went, oh, great. Yeah, it'll make me wise. Give me that. Yeah, no, those are the attributes that, that he will not share with us to try to presume that we have those attributes. It gets you right off into the area of being cultic and, and, and being absolutely in the place where Satan was. Remember, why did Satan fall from heaven? He wanted to set himself up as God. He wanted to take these attributes on. We looked at what it is to be infinite, to be self-existent. We looked at the simplicity of God. In other words, he's not juggling. He's, it's settled. He's all of these things 100% all at one time. Hard to understand. We looked at the immutability of God. He doesn't change. We looked at the sovereignty of God. We looked at the three omnis, that, that he's omnipresent, that he's present everywhere. We looked at that he's omnipotent. He has all power. We looked at the fact that he's omniscient, that he has all knowledge. Um, so those are attributes that are not communicated to man. They're not moral attributes. They're attributes that are the essence of who God is and what he's about. Uh, remember, he doesn't take these things on. He is these things. And that's a hard, that's a mind bender, folks. Uh, to sit and to, to meditate, to dwell on the nature and the character of God with finite brains and finite understanding. Uh, I know why J.I. Packer, one of my heroes, when he wrote the book, Knowing God, which had a profound impact on me. I was a, a few months in the Lord before my church had a Saturday morning Bible study, well, it was a Bible study, but it was studying the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And it, the truths that were revealed there about the nature and character of God turned my life upside down, created a hunger and a thirst in me for God's word that uh, I pray is never satisfied. Uh, and, and the way that he prefaced that book, he said, as a clown yearns to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. Because we can grasp these things, but you've got to realize that each of his attributes is as relates to infinity. He is infinitely loving. He is infinitely holy. And we'll look at that as we go. So understanding that when we look at communicable attributes, these are the attributes that God shares with us, the moral attributes of God, that as finite beings we will share in the communicable attributes of God to an extent. We're not perfect. And we know that. I don't need me to say that. But when he shares his holiness with us, when he calls us to a holy life, it's not going to be the same as he is infinitely holy. He is morally pure as relates to infinity. That's not going to be something that we share. But the moral aspect of that, living a life that is dedicated to purity, that is dedicated to personal, practical holiness, is. That's where we're going with this. For instance, we, since we don't share these at, attributes in a perfect sense, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we read that God is love. 
Humans can love, but we don't love perfectly, do we? We read that God is just. Well, look at that, that he's righteous and just. And as humans, we have a sense of justice. We can carry out justice, but we do it imperfectly. Uh, often you hear, no, well, not often, but sometimes you hear of somebody that spent you know, 37 years in prison and now because of DNA, they were set free. That's a flawed justice. We know that God's the creator and he doesn't share his creative. He does to an extent. We are creative, but we can't create what's known as ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. It's a Greek word that's used for God as creator, that he creates out of nothing. He breathes the universe into existence. We, that's the last thing in the world we can do. We, we can usually destroy things pretty well. So we have a partial on these. We have the imperfect, and yet we're all in process and we're all growing. That's the point of this passage is that we're growing in our relationship with Christ. And how do you imitate God? You understand who he is. You understand what he's about. You understand the way that he's revealed himself and he's revealed himself through these particular attributes that we give labels to, but they are just simply who he is. So as we get into this, I'm going to move quickly here really quickly because we're going to cover a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. And I want to encourage you, if you're a note taker, come back and catch the video or the podcast or whatever. Uh, i got a lot of scripture I want to cover because I like giving scriptural examples of these things, both for who God is and what our part is. And, And so the only way to cover these, we're going to look at eight this morning, is to do it quickly. So I apologize in, in advance. Uh, my son loves to use the term buckle up, buttercup. And that's kind of what I'm asking you to do <laughs> because we're going to race. We're going to sprint through this. And my prayer is, is not that you get it on all of these things, but that you get inspired to search it out yourself, to be as the Bereans we see in, in Acts chapter 17, where they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. I can only give you a representation of these attributes. I, there is so much scripture behind these that, that, that my prayer is that it'll whet your appetite to, to go for more. So the first one, and, and I put this first on purpose, is that God is holy. This is an essential attribute. In other words, it, his essence is he is holy. He doesn't take on holiness. He is holy. He doesn't set the standard for these things. He is the standard for these things. All right? Understand. He, he doesn't look at the list and go, oh, I need to be that. No, he is that. We might look at the list, but he is these things. He's absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than he is. You get all that? You can spend the rest of the hour thinking about that. He is infinitely pure, infinitely holy. As relates to infinity, he is nothing but purity in every conceivable way. Because his, he is holy, all of the attributes that we're going to look at are part of who he is. Therefore, whatever we think about God must be thought of as holy, pure, infinitely so. So what about us? You know, applied to human beings, holiness, is, it's a purity of heart, or it's, it's our disposition. It's, it's our sanctified affections. It's moral goodness. Yeah, not in perfection, but as God is calling us deeper He is pruning away the old life and causing us to be more holy. And I want to talk about some things here. First Peter chapter one, he says in verses 15 and 16, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That, in other words, that is stating very clearly 
that this is an attribute of God that he wants us to take on. And as we yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, again, we don't grow the fruit. He grows the fruit in us. And as we abide in him, then the fruit comes. As the fruit comes, he also is pruning that old life, that old nature out of us. That's the process. That's how he does it. We simply, I told somebody after the first service, I said, you know, I'm fond of the saying, the only thing that God ever requires of us is that we just show up. And oh, how often we don't want to show up. Just show up. Avail yourself. Lord, here I am. Work in me. Take my heart. Replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Do the work that only you can do. So the question then is, how is God's holiness reflected in us? And what I'm going to share with you folks, there are times where, you know, I could, I could stand up here and I could just give you one principle after another. I could go through these attributes. I could give you all of the stuff, say, this is how we need to live, da 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 But if I don't tell you how, I'm not, I call it landing the plane. It's something that Bible teachers talk about. It's like, okay, you're going to take off. You're going to fly around. It's okay, land the plane. Tell them how, how, you know, get to the nuts and bolts. Get to the how in all of this. And I'm going to tell you, and this applies to God's holiness, but it applies to every one of these attributes. And I want to share with you folks what it is, the life-changing aspect of what it is to imitate Christ. So how do we, how, how does God's holiness show up in my life? And I'll tell you simply, it's through cultivating a lifelong mindset of repentance. Yeah, we like to talk about repentance. Yeah, when I got saved, I repented of my old life and I, and I invite people to do that all the time. I mean, you know, it's part of sharing the gospel, turn from the old life, change your mind. That's what repent means. It means I'm screaming down the highway this way and I oh man, this is the wrong day. And I put that baby into a four-wheel slide and turn around and I'm screaming down the other direction. That's repentance. It's putting on the brakes, turning around and going the other way, changing my mind about these things. It begins, repentance, that, that mindset of repentance begins with our understanding of God. Uh, again, talking about J.I. Packer, he, another book that he wrote called Rediscovering Holiness. I want to read you a quote. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's really, really good. And it talks about this very thing. Uh, the subtitle of his book is Knowing the Fullness of Life with God. I love that. He says, on one hand, Christians are captivated and fascinated with the glory of God's grace and love, and rightfully so. Uh, Captivates my heart whenever I start looking at it. He says, but they're equally captivated with a slightly different effect by his holiness and justice and and purity. So he says, this characteristically Christian sense of the mercy and the terror or fear of the Lord is the seedbed in which awareness grows that lifelong repentance is a must for holy living. Absolutely essential. That awareness will not grow under any other conditions. You might as well unplug from the vine because you're not going to get pruned if you're not plugged in. Where it is lacking any supposed sanctity to prove on inspection to be flawed by complacency about oneself and short-sightedness about sin. So in other words, when I am not engaged in my life of saying, Lord, I want to have a lifestyle that is marked by repentance, by saying, you have touched my heart on this thing. I need to do business with you on it. I need to be able to get right. I need to go to that person. However that looks, I mean, it's a life, folks. It's, it's a lifestyle of saying, Lord, you're convicting my heart in an area and I need to respond to that and to, to yield that area to you. As that happens, our lives are absolutely transformed. Transformed by the power of God. And the fruit grows. The pruning away happens. That's the conviction. That's the acting on it. He prunes us. It's putting off the old man. It's putting on the new man. It's how the new man is put on. 
by cultivating this awareness of the need for repentance on an ongoing basis in our lives. He says, he says, show me then a professed Christian who does not see and insist on the need for ongoing repentance. And I will show you a stunted soul for whom God is not yet the Holy One in the full biblical sense. For such a person, true Christian holiness is at present out of reach. He says, true repentance then begins when a Christian is enabled by God's gracious power to transition out of self-delusion. And folks, we delude ourselves. Uh, Or what modern psychology calls denial. Into what the Bible describes as heartfelt conviction of sin. This is practical. This has nothing to do with the grace of God resting on my life, which it is if I if my life belongs to Him. But this is how my life is transformed. This is how the fruit grows. This is how I put off the old man and I put on the new. This in turn leads to the abandonment of self-centered disobedience and is replaced by a God-centered life in which the Savior is honored, his people are served, and his revealed word is obeyed. Wise words. Because God is holy. All of his attributes are holy. Because God is conforming us to the image of his Son. This is a process. We call it the process of sanctification, which is holyfication. Yes, my life was declared holy when I, when I took my life and I laid it at the foot of that cross. I said, Lord, here am I. I repent of my old life. I embrace you. But that should not be the only time that repentance shows up, folks. It should be a daily thing in our relationship with him as we yield ourselves to him, as we yield up our lives and say, Change me from the inside out. That's why living according to a creed is so dangerous. Then I'm just following the rules and my heart is not affected. And in this case, profoundly affected to where decision upon decision, it adds up. I've shared many times with people, look, it's not the major decisions in your life that add up to a life. It's those decisions that you go through every single day, decision by decision, thing by thing in our lives, in our hearts that add up to a changed life. That's what Packer's talking about. That's what I'm talking about here. That's how we have lives that imitate God as beloved children. The second thing we want to look at here, the second attribute is love. God's infinite love is a function of his holiness. Understand that. And what it means is that he eternally gives himself to others. Because as I mentioned before, that agape love, that highest form of love, that sacrificial love is who God is. And as we look at this in him, we see that that's that's the way he is. It is everything about who he is. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, we read, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him him who glories, glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness. Judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Isn't that good? Another uh, writer that I love, a guy by the name A.W. Tozer, you'll hear, hear me quote him fairly often. He, he just, he, he has this, I call it meat and potatoes theology. It's not high-minded, you know, such big words that I go find a dictionary and all that. And it's nothing wrong with that. But practically speaking, just coming before you guys and for all of us, just good basic understanding of these things. What he says about the love of God, he says, it is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Think about that. Because of who he is, he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with us. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied until he gets it. 
free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. You want to talk about a love story? He's writing that love story from his heart to yours, from his heart to mine. God's love is active, drawing us to himself. His love is personal. I, I just, I get blown away when I'm reading this stuff, when I'm looking at this stuff and I'm just meditating on it. It's like, it's, I love what the psalmist, he says, it's too high. It's such knowledge. It's just too wonderful for me. If I rise up into heaven, you're there. Go to the depths of the earth, you're there. It's, it's just wonderful stuff. And this is wonderful stuff about God. His love, he doesn't love humanity in some vague sense. Tozer goes on. He loves humans. He loves you and me. And his love for us knows no beginning and no end. It's an infinite love. So how does that kind of love, how is that expressed through me? And and frankly, bluntly, I'll tell you, get out of yourself. (laughs) Folks, we all, we're all in that place. Get out of yourself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price is what the Bible tells us. I had a friend named Jerry. I, I looked him up. I looked his life up online recently and saw that, that he, um, he died young. Uh, but for a couple of years, he worked down at the auto parts store and I had my shops and my business stuff going on the other end of town. And uh, God gave me the opportunity to disciple this guy. He was a baby Christian, just, just full of love. And, you know, he, and, and he was trying to figure it out. And it was just awesome. We had these great talks. Um, and he called me up one day. He said, John, can I come over after work? And I said, yeah, sure, Jerry. What's up? He said, oh, man, I got to talk to you. Okay, sure. Come on over. You know, we'll have a soft drink together and, you know, hang out and talk. So he shows up after work and, and he sits there. <laughs> we were in my office and, um, and, and he just unloads on me about his wife. I'm telling you, she is just ticking me. And she, he just goes down the list. And furthermore, she's... And he just goes through the whole thing. And I'm just sitting there quietly. And I'm praying, which I always do. If you ever come to see me, I'll just be praying. And saying, Lord, what do I say to this guy? So he gets... It's like he, he's like a, a, a tightly wound clock that kind of runs down. Pretty soon he's got nothing else to say. And I'm sitting there looking at him. And I said, uh, and he's like, well, what do you you say? What do you think, John? And I said, Jerry, let me ask you something. He said, what? I said, does your your wife like flowers? He's like, what? I said, how about you go home and stop by the store, pick up a bouquet of flowers and a nice card and sit in in your car and write out what you want to tell her, how much you value her, how much you love her, and go home and give it to her. Well, yeah, but wait, wait, Jerry, are you telling me now that you can walk in the grace of God, that you can receive the grace of God for your life, that you are a messed up person like all of us, and that, that you're going to take his love, you want his love, you rely on his love, you don't want justice, and yet you're going to go home and beat your wife up about how imperfect she is? Makes no sense. He goes, well, kind of, understand what you mean. So a couple of days later, I get a call from Jerry. My life is renewed. And he's just happy singing praises. And it's like, oh, yeah. like I was a genius. All I did was give him the word of God. But the point is, is that we can hold back on God's love. And he says, get over yourself. You don't have that right. Love the way I love. Sacrificially. And I was telling Jerry, essentially, you know, it could have been a number of things to do, but essentially it's get over yourself, Jerry. Yeah, so what? You're upset. Yeah, you know what? She's probably guilty of those things, or at least part of it. There's two sides to every one of those deals. (laughs) Definitely learn that. The point is, just go love her. See what happens. Humble out, man. It's stuck on my, I want to make sure. No. So, Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 32 says this. He says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, there's a higher form of love and you can choose to walk in it 
or not. That's why we're studying this passage. It's what he says in verse 2 here. He says, walk in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us sacrificially. He didn't insist on his rights on his way to the cross. Quite the opposite. The next thing we want to look at is wise, the wisdom of God. Think about, have you ever thought about the wisdom of God? That he is full. He is absolutely full of perfect, unchanging, he's immutable, wisdom. That he is infinitely wise. It's just one of those attributes that, I mean, he always gets it right. Always. Infinitely. And he wants to impart wisdom to us. But folks, it's not the wisdom of this world. There's a godly wisdom that we're after. That's why so often, it's like, you know, when Stacy and I moved here to take this church and I came out of corporate America and the IRAs and the profit sharing and the, all the stuff and all of that, my coworkers are going, are you nuts? No, I'm being wise. God called me to go do something and I'm going to go do it. That's, it see, there's a difference between man's wisdom and God's. And, and, and that's what he calls us to. What Paul says here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. You ever think about that? Yeah, you guys probably see that in the university. <laughs> Academia professes to be wise, very often steer people the other way. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's what he's saying. There's a difference. Godly wisdom. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, talking about how does that come to bear in my life? He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not a wisdom of this age, who are coming to nothing. The wisest person in this age, outside of Christ, will come to nothing. I remember being on a trial jury with a, a, for, for an arson case with a superior court judge at a county in California. And this guy was, I mean, he's supposed to be the guy that is wise. He was also um, the, the head guy for the Mormon church in that county. And I went to my son's baccalaureate, and he was officiating at the baccalaureate. Totally man's wisdom. Not an ounce of godly wisdom. And he had an opportunity. But he, professing to be wise, he's not. You be careful who we listen to. It sounds good sometimes. But if it's man's wisdom, you need to take that into account. He says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not a wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the, we seek, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. That doesn't mean it's a mystery that's hidden from everybody. It was hidden until then. The hidden wisdom of which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Godly wisdom. Seek it. Pray for it. We're going to talk more about wisdom and walking in wisdom when we get to verse 15, (laughs) probably three months from now. Now, when we get to verse 15 in, in this chapter, because Paul talks about what it is to walk in wisdom, and we're going we're gonna to really get centered on it there. Uh, but suffice it to say that even the wisest person in this life, the wisest person on this earth, even Solomon himself, the wisest man that ever lived, his wisdom was nothing compared to the infinite wisdom of God. Remember, we're finite. God is infinite. And when you bump those up against one another, yeah, that's very interesting. The fourth one we want to look at here is true. 
that God is truth. And he only speaks the truth. Because of this, his promises are reliable. He's dependable. He's faithful. In other words, you can bank on him. He's not going to lead you down the primrose path and then clobber you. He is truth. He's, he's the embodiment of truth. He is. It's who he is. That's why Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. So when we look at that, I mean, and, and look at Pilate. Uh, in, in our culture, when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate said those famous words, what is truth? And in our culture, folks, postmodernism is a real thing and, and people are being taught it. And, and you need to understand that there's a difference between a subjective truth and an objective truth. A subjective truth is, well, my truth is. Usually when I hear that, somebody say that and they're going to start talking about God you know, my antennas are, they go up right away um, because they're going to give me a subjective truth. It's, it's their opinion, essentially. Subjective realities are based in opinion or they're based in emotion and all of that. God is objectively, not subjectively, he is objectively true. Verifiable, discernible. That's truth. It's not like, you know, Go out the car parking lot and I, I tell you, come and look at my yellow car. You go out there and say, it's white, Pastor John. Well, my truth is it's yellow to me. It doesn't change the fact that the car is white. And so when we talk about God being truth, the truth, it's an objective truth. Scripture demonstrates that there's no truth that is not intimately attached to God. Because he's not the standard, he is the standard, as we mentioned before. In Numbers chapter 23, 19, uh, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In other words, you can rely on him. His truth is sturdy. His truth is dependable. You can bank on him. So how does that apply to us? How do we put on truth? What do we do? Again, that's part of understanding. Jesus said in John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, he said, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So how much value do I put on this, on his word? It's everything. It's everything. And when John, the apostle, as an old man, they, they had to carry the, the uh, it's said in, in extra biblical uh, stuff that, that they carried him in and out of church. He was that old. And he writes in third John chapter one, verses three and four. He says, for I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. This is about walking folks. This is about a manner of lifestyle. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Good stuff. Next one we want to look at is faithful, the faithfulness of God. As with all of God's attributes, you got to understand they're not separate. They're not isolated traits, but they're interconnected parts of who he is, his perfect entire being. So his faithfulness can't be understood apart from his immutability, the fact that he never changes. So if he's faithful, he is going to be unchangingly faithful. All right? All of these attributes, again, they interconnect. We're trying to describe things about God here. And he's the one, he's the definition of these things. So it's like you can't quite get there from here, but we can describe these things from the word of God and see how they connect with us as we imitate God, as we walk and we mime him, as we imitate, as we're conformed to his image, as beloved children. 
God's faithfulness, faithfulness means that God will always do what he says. And he will always fulfill what he's promised. The promises of God are yes and amen. They are not changeable. Over 3,000 promises in the word of God, and he enforces each one. That's why we find such security in the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, uh, we read, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, that he, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So being faithful, again, translating that to us as his people, essentially what faithfulness is for us is to be walking in lives that are full of faith, that we're walking by faith. The just shall live by faith. Romans, the book of Romans begins and ends with the statement, the obedience of faith or obedience to the faith, that That is our obedience, that we simply choose to trust God in any given situation at any given time. So he says here in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Next thing we want to look at, I know we're moving quickly through this. Uh, Got a couple more here is the fact that God is righteous and just. The righteousness of God is one of the most prominent attributes of God in all of the scripture. In addition, I want you to understand this. You can separate these two or you can put them together. And it depends on, on the way you're, and I'll get to that. Is The righteousness of God is virtually synonymous with his justice. And understand that. When we say that God is just... We're saying that he always does what's right. He's always doing what should be done. And he always does it consistently, without partiality, without prejudice. The word just and the word righteous are identical words in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In addition to God's other moral perfections, we can see his moral purity through his righteousness. You can see this is a function, again, of his holiness interconnected. Stay with me here. I know that this is, I don't want you to get bogged down because I'm pouring a lot of information out. Stay with me. We're getting somewhere here with the final point I want to make here in a few minutes. Essentially, that God is righteous is that he always does all that is right. Always. As righteous, he's established a moral order for the whole universe and he treats all creatures fairly. In Romans 3.26, the Apostle Paul says to demonstrate the right at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when we look at this, the justice of God demonstrates, it's the outer demonstration of the attribute that God has that, that he is righteous. In other words, through his righteousness, he is just. Do you understand how that works together. And that's what this verse says in Romans 3.26. So for us to be justified by God is to be declared righteous. You can't get to heaven without righteousness. I'll tell you what, uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day tried. The thing, the big thing that they had wrong was they thought they could manufacture their own. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious guys of his day, or you will in no way see, very adamant there, the kingdom of heaven. You've got to have righteousness. That's why further in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. He's essentially illustrating the fact that there are two ways to get to heaven. You can either be completely righteous in your own righteousness perfectly for entire, an entire life. I <laughs> can't get through the day with that. You, you're either conceive, consumingly perfect in every conceivable way or you have faith in Jesus and you receive his righteousness because he did lead the perfect life. He did go before us and pave the way. 
We receive his righteousness. We are actually, our lives are dipped in his righteousness. We are covered. We are immersed in his righteousness. Now when I sin and the father looks down on me, he sees me in the righteousness of his son. And he doesn't count it. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul tells Timothy, he says, All scripture is given by God, by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're learning how to live rightly. That's what that means. We're, is right living. And so as we're subjecting our hearts to him, to his transforming power, as we are abiding in the vine as branches, as he is pruning away the old growth, the useless growth, as we are growing in him, as we put off the old man, we put on the new man, we are becoming more righteous. We are living lives that count. We are living lives that are, lives that are consistent with who he is. He says in verse 17 of of 2 Timothy 3, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we're trained in righteousness. Seventh thing we want to look at here is goodness and mercy. I think we're going to make it. The mercy of God is rooted in God's goodness. And I understand that. Yeah, you can look at the goodness of God. You can look at the mercy of God. And that's fine. You can take those apart. But we don't have time, so I put them together. But it truly is the, the goodness of God or the mercy of God is rooted in his goodness. Because he is good, he is merciful. You understand how that works? All right. The goodness of God means that he is the final standard for good. And that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. The first aspect of his goodness is his, the bountiful way that he deals with us. By which he liberally gives us all things. He, he's given us life. He's, he allows us to be. The, the second issue of God's goodness is his mercy, which he denotes, the, which denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. <laughs> Thus, mercy presupposes sin. That's why the Bible tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. In Hebrews 4.16, we read, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Micah, one of my favorite passages of the scripture, in Micah 6.8, he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Finally, the last one we want to look at here is that God is gracious. And I save that for last on purpose. The grace of God is best understood that the definition of grace is unmerited favor. If you've been around the church for very long, you've been around Christians for very long, you understand that that's, that's sort of the working definition. What it means is that something good happens to you or to me And I didn't do anything to merit or earn it. That's God's disposition towards us. He is gracious. He's infinitely gracious. He delights in blessing his children. He delights in doing things and pouring himself out in a gracious manner that is not dependent on our performance. Folks, we live and we were born into and we live in a society and in a world that it's performance-based acceptance. You know, you do a good job, you keep your job. You do a bad job, you lose your job. You, you I mean, right down to potty training. If, if you make it to the toilet, you get an M&M. You know, I mean, it's all about performance. And it's, you do it, here's the reward. It's, it's, that's how it works. Not so with the kingdom of God. He says, I don't care what he does, but he says, it's not about you It's about me. It's not about your capacity to get it right. It's about me. It's about my grace. It's not about you and your capacity to love. It's about my love. And so on and so on. He is the definition of grace. 
He's gracious. The scripture portrays God as abounding in grace. In the book of Romans, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And in the original language, where sin abounds, grace superabounds in a sphere of glory is how that's translated. Got to understand something about grace. God doesn't owe anybody grace. If he owed grace, it would no longer be grace. And and the sooner we get that through our heads, it's like he doesn't owe me. And I can't, that's why I can't earn points with him. I come to him, I submit my life to him. And I say, Lord, it's by your grace that I stand. There's no other way. There's no other way. And as I do, I come to him in humility and I come to him with my heart open for his transforming work, I will be thinking more like Jesus. I will be imitating him more. Oh, folks, would it be that grace would show up in our relationships? Because it's not just being saved by grace, it's walking in grace. It's saying, you know what? I love you, brother. I love you, sister. I love you, child, parent, whatever the relationship is, is Not because, and you don't have to say it, not because you're such a doof. You don't say anything like that. But, you know, if you're dealing with people that are hard to love, then you're choosing to love them. That counts in God's economy. That is grace. That's how he approaches us. You know, Jesus, as I mentioned when we're talking about love, it's easy to love people that are lovable. And if that was the basis upon uh, which God extended grace to us, only when we were lovable, number one, it wouldn't be grace. Number two, he would never do it. It wouldn't happen because we're all doofs in different ways. We all get it wrong sometimes. We all pack around this old nature. It's not making an excuse. It's just a reality. The point in all of this that Paul is making here, the same point that Jesus made there, I believe on the roof of the upper room, is are you going to yield to the old nature or are you going to put on his nature? That's what it is to put on Christ. Yielded to the work of his Holy Spirit and he causes you to look more like him as time goes by, to act more like him as time goes by, to imitate him as time goes by in greater measure. That's why Paul says that, you know, Moses came down from that mountain in 2 Corinthians. He came down from that mountain and his face was cooling off. He'd been in the presence of God and the glory of God was all over him. But it was decreasing. This is the how that Paul could say, but not with us. For our glory is increasing from glory to glory, situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance. He's growing us. He's pruning the old growth. He's bringing the new growth out. For us, Paul said to Timothy, he said, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Don't you go beating people up, Paul, or Timothy. The second Peter, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's what we've been talking about here. We're talking about growth. We're talking about imitating God as beloved children. We're talking about bearing fruit as our lives are hidden in the vine. We're talking about loving the way that Jesus loves us. That's what it is to imitate God as beloved children. That's the call upon each one of our lives. As I said, not optional. Is he gracious with us? Yeah. Does he meet us where we're at? Yeah, he does. Cracks, warts, freckles, blemishes and all. And praise God for that. I want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you've never come into this relationship that we're talking about, I totally want to encourage you, let go. Give your life to Jesus. And what it looks like, that initial call to repentance is to turn from the old life, to say, Lord, I repent. I turn from the old life. And I embrace you because I see that the life that you offer has infinitely more depth and richness and purpose. If that's what you're doing, pray a simple prayer that is just simple. Simply, I turn from that life and I embrace you, Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a new life. 
that I could live in your kingdom and not just for this life, but for eternity because that's what hangs in the balance. He's a good God. He's, he's so gracious and loving to us. As we walk, let's be gracious with one another. Let's have lives that are marked by a pattern of repentance. As, we, as he com- convicts us, he identifies things in our hearts. That's how we learn to imitate our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for just for these wonderful passages. Lord, as we look at you and we look at the attributes of who you are, Lord, let us not get bogged down in, in, in the details of that because there's just so much information here, but that we would simply embrace you in increasingly loving ways. Lord, receiving your love and then giving it away, which is what you call all of us to do. So we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your divinely inspired word. And Father, I pray that you would bring to each one's remembrance those things that you want each one to remember. There's so much information here. And yet we know that you're faithful, that you would take that word out, that you would use it in our lives, that you would grow us, that as you prune us, Lord, that we wouldn't shrink back, but that we would embrace that pruning and that we would know that it's all for you working your purposes in us. We love you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name.